On this episode of Athletic Training Chat, we have Shauna Erickson. Shauna is an athletic trainer who is currently working on her PhD in Canada, focusing on movement um, and mindset and everything that goes into really just generally helping your body move and function. Um, along with doing all of that, Shauna has started up uh, her own company called Movement Matters or MBMT Matters. Well worth a follow on Instagram as she is constantly putting out ideas and videos to help focus on your movement and generally improvement for your quality of life based on the fact that you move a little bit better. Uh, lots of really good information there. Shauna is definitely doing a lot in this space and combining her knowledge in athletic training and strength and conditioning and just general wellness and movement all together to treat a holistic way in athletic training with a huge focus on prevention, which we discuss in this episode and why it can be such an important domain for athletic trainers to focus on. As always, we are powered by Mueller Sports Medicine. Please consider giving them a look anytime you're looking for new equipment or things that you might need to stock up your athletic training room or just if you have an idea that you want to potentially see added on or adjusted with their kits or any of their equipment. Without further ado, please enjoy this episode. This episode of Athletic Training Chat, we are on with Shauna Erickson of MVMT Matters. If you have come across that on Instagram um, or other places, I know we've been watching. Uh, just happened to get the notification this morning uh, to tune into a live video that was going, so we clicked into that to see a little morning stretching routine, which was awesome. Um, and we are going to be talking uh, PhD work, uh, but. Um, MVMT matters, you know, movement matters, I'm assuming is how you probably refer to it most of the time, uh, is what it's all about. I think there's some great content on there, and I really like the approach you're taking to it, tying in so many other things, and really going from there. Um, and, you know, we got fortunate enough to connect up because we got tagged from Athletic Training Chat and a few things and checked it out, um, and eventually <laughs> reached out and connected, and a couple miss schedules later here we are <laughs> yeah totally so without any further rambling from me i'll turn it over to shauna to kind of give her background on how she got to where she is right now and then we'll kind of jump into everything yeah thanks joel for having me um i i think it's really funny because i'm starting to notice on instagram it's kind of like an interweb of athletic trainers that are kind of making a bigger scene into the social media atmosphere and kind of connecting and tagging the same people, which is really cool. Cause then we're, you know, getting to see what everybody's doing. Um, and that's how I got turned into different podcasts that are also promoting athletic trainers and the different uh, routes that they've taken in that profession and how they're influencing, um, you know, their career in the world and affecting different athletes of different levels and different atmospheres. So um, it's very cool to see how much social me media has taken a presence in our realm, which is awesome. Because um, I felt like it used to be almost uh, frowned upon, 
Like you didn't want to record someone doing something and then post it to social media just because of HIPAA violation, sure. but asking for their permission. Um, but even just being on your phone while working was kind of frowned upon for that purpose. So, um, uh, so it's definitely taken a turn and I think for the positive, which is great. Um, so to dive into my background, um, I went to, uh, where, where do you want me to start? <laughs> um, yeah. Maybe why, you know, athletic training, you know, why was that the route to go? And then I know one we were going to talk about is, you know, the pursuit of a PhD uh, versus really taking a look at and even the routes that you go, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but psychology and looking at injury prevention, which I think is awesome versus, you know, an exercise science type thing, or even a potential clinical option in, in like the DAT type realm, um, which is becoming more popular within athletic training. Yeah. Um, so I pursued athletic training for um, the reason that most people in athletic training, I think, do is we were once an athlete and we experienced some sort of injury that uh, put us into that injury rehabilitation world where we either received physical therapy or, or treatment of some sort. Um, ultrasound happened to be my favorite. Um, so I really took an interest in um, working with people and in rehab and helping to make people better and heal faster. Um, I was initially looking at physical therapy when I was in high school. I did my senior project, which was a 20-page research paper and interviewing people um, in, different in different professions that had to do with rehabilitation. And so that's when I really found out about athletic training. I knew that we had an athletic trainer. I just didn't necessarily know what he did. Mm -hmm. um, I had only seen him one time, which was for the injury I sustained, well, twice. Uh, my hyperextended knee while I played water polo, and um, I had a bee sting during swim practice in my cheek. So yeah. that was really fun. So I went and saw him for those two things. Um, but outside of that, and being seeing him on the sidelines, I wasn't really sure what it everything entailed. Um, so when I started exploring it further, I was in community college, uh, going after kind of like my prerequisites and all my general education, um, and then started looking at different programs. I was looking at physical therapy assistant, um, but it wasn't necessarily the population that I wanted to work with. So when I was asking one of my career counselors, what, um, how can I work with athletes? And then that's kind of how I got uh, pushed down that route. I ended up going to University of Louisiana at Lafayette to get uh, for my clinical athletic training program. Um, graduated in 2012. I stayed for a year working for um, a sports chiropractor. I did the administrative and um, assistant duties, I guess you could call it, because I was the only person there aside from him. So I was doing scheduling, insurance filing, um, I was also uh, running patients through rehab, and he was teaching me a lot about manual therapy, which was really great to learn right out of school. Um, that's where I learned about scraping and rock taping, <laughs> and I've carried that on since. <laughs> and then um, after a year of working there, I moved back to California, where I'm from, and started working for a uh, private boarding school. And that was really my first um, full-time position, which was really great because I knew that I felt I wasn't prepared to take on my own, my own show. Mm -hmm. um, and so working as an assistant uh, really helped me develop and uh, develop my skills and also my ability and confidence level. 
Um, so I was very grateful for that position. Um, then after three years, I decided to take on a head role at a other another private school in the area, in the Santa Barbara area, and then um, worked for a year there. I wasn't necessarily happy with my situation, the way that it was set up, being part-time in a physical therapy clinic and then part-time at the high school, um, because I felt that, I mean, I'm sure you know, like our capacity in a physical therapy clinic is not like we don't get to do our full job duties and description. So I felt like I was just, I wasn't satisfied. Um, so then I started looking elsewhere and found a full-time position up in Oregon. Um, I started working for a um, nonprofit organization. It's a really amazing uh, organization in Bend. And I was uh, working in the mornings as a cast technician. So I was in the ortho clinic, casting broken bones, doing some wound debridement um, and assisting in on like outpatient procedures like uh, amputations and things like that. Um, and then in the afternoon, I was the head athletic trainer at a very, like a big, uh, I think they were division six high school. Um, and uh, we had, I think about 600 athletes that I was responsible for in all different types of sports and a lot of division one promises. So it was a big transition from the smaller boarding school and private school that I was used to, but um, it was a you know, a challenge that I definitely needed and that I wanted. So I was glad that I had that experience. Um, <laughs> two months after I moved to Oregon, I met my now boyfriend who had mentioned, well, he, I had talked to him about pursuing a PhD. And then um, he asked me if I'd ever looked into Canadian schools. And I honestly hadn't, I didn't think that I was going to be pursuing my PhD now. Mm -hmm. um, so after exploring, I reached out to University of Concordia at Montreal. I spoke with the program director. And then when I came for a visit, I met with the, the director at the campus and we sort of just hit it off and kind of just happened from there. Um, he like two months later uh, told me he had, you know, funding available, asked me if I wanted to come in the fall and put in my application and had my interviews and I was moving within six months. <laughs> so now I'm here and I'm in my second year. We've often, yeah, I mean, we're not, I'm not super close to Canada, but I mean, Wisconsin's relatively there. And just given kind of the way of the world, we wonder if Canada was still open to taking any more people because sometimes it just seems like it might be a better option. In the it's so funny. I, oh, I totally understand. Uh, <laughs> because after the first round, uh, I definitely was one of those that Googled it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, definitely. Um, so one, just you know, the PhD route versus the DAT, because you know, obviously moving up to Canada, which is not always um, the route a lot of people take. I've had people that I know that actually looked at Australia for some PhD work. Um, and it sounds like they've got some unique modeling out there for it as well. Um, what drove you to the PhD side versus the DAT? you know, just in terms of looking at your clinical, you know, skill set versus obviously PhD is so broad and the things you could go and take a look at. Yeah. So I, um, to be honest, my, in my future, I didn't see myself working in a clinical setting. Okay. Um, I want to create my own, you know, I've created my own business and I want to grow and develop that. And um, I was tired of working for someone or, you know, something where um, I consistently had to explain myself. 
Um, and I felt that that was never ending. And I, I love the high school setting. Like I, I love working with high school age uh, demographic, um, but constantly explaining myself with parents, administration, um, other, you know, uh, administrative people that are supporting athletic training, but don't have a full understanding of what the profession is, mm-hmm. was starting to really be defeating. So I felt that I needed, I needed more letters for some reason. I don't know why. Um, and uh, I, and yeah. I always, I always knew that I wanted to go all the way in school. My dad had always asked me like, how far are you going to go? I was like, well, dad, all the way. And I thought all the way was PhD, but then I started learning about postdoc and fellowships and, you know, additional things like that. So for right now, we're just going to keep it at the PhD level. Um, So I felt that PhD allowed more flexibility in um, the range of uh, research because I didn't necessarily know what uh, category or Mm -hmm. scope I wanted to be researching in. I knew that it was going to be injury prevention. Um, and then when I sat and talked with the program director, he's, he's more, he's a little bit more on the psychological side because he developed the, um, athlete, uh, pain related fear questionnaire. So yeah. he does a lot of fear related pain, pain catastrophizing. Um, so definitely down the psychological route. So when I finally did commit to this program and got here, my, uh, sort of trajectory was laid out for me, my scope. Yeah. Um, which I wasn't necessarily opposed to. So it was great. Um, and I've always been one to really, uh, like we already have a compassionate side for the most part to do what we do. We sort of need that. Um, but I'm more attuned. Like I, I feel like I have more empathy as well. So I'm yeah. able to like tap into those emotions and get um, athletes to really kind of expose how they're feeling um, and everything that's associated with being injured and the, that process. Um, so that's kind of where I tapped into my healer vibes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. You kind of had mentioned that you, you kind of have your path ish set up for you and what you're doing with your PhD. Um, I know it's only year two, but um, honing in on your specific like dissertation, you know, defense, do you, do you have what you're looking at doing? Yeah. So, I mean, when I, so I'm actually like the first cohort of PhD students in our department. Um, Yeah. So this is their first year actually having a PhD program. So it's kind of like we're learning all at the same time. Um, And uh, we just had a meeting about my comp exams um, uh, last week, maybe a week and a half ago. So that's, they have a better idea of what the structure is going to look like, even though it's not actually like set in stone quite yet. Sure. Um, but as far, like we knew like on a four year big window, like what I needed in order to finish. Um, and then, but the, like the big project wasn't really established until this past summer. Okay. Um, like we took the first year to, uh, the first semester was basically just trying to get used to being settled in. Um, I also was in some coursework. So I was doing some stats, really hard stats, to be honest with you. Like it sucked. <laughs> uh, I'm not a fan. <laughs> I, I want to pretend I want to be good at it. And then <laughs> yeah. I start digging into it. And I was just like, I just don't know that this jives with me. I just don't know that I've got a feel for it. I've got a, another buddy who is, he just, he just seems to get it. And I think it's because he's just studied his ass off, but like, he'll start talking. I'm like, I just black out. I zone out. And I say, I'm glad you're into it. Cause I don't get it. 
That's funny. No, my colleague uh, that I work with in the same lab, he, uh, <laughs> so funny that he just gets it and he really likes it too. So I just joke with him. I was like, you're going to do all of my stats for me. And he was like, that's fine. And I said, I'll just pay. you. <laughs> uh, so it's real. it's funny, but um, no, like there, there are certain things that I understand. It just so happened that the professor for this certain stats class is, um, he's world renowned um, for, well, he's one of the few professors that don't like significance testing. So like T-tests and things like okay. that, like com comparative analysis, sure. um, they're, they're against it because it's not necessarily, it doesn't have clinical relevance. So you right. could say that something's statistically significant, it doesn't mean it's clinically significant. Sure. Um, so that's, but unfortunately a lot of journals need that sort of testing and require it in order to get published. So um yeah that that was the that's a little bit of a discouraging aspect of it but either way we'll, I'll work through it and do what I need to do right um but still trying to contribute as much as I can to like real life effectiveness and real you know practicality um but uh, yeah so then my first semester, I also was establishing a relationship with the athletic department, um, like working with a couple of the um, teams. I was working with women's uh, soccer and women's rugby and implementing um, the 11 plus warm up. And then we were going to do some measures to test before and after the program to see uh, differences and hopefully maybe something like their landing error score. Um, uh, Stark's version balance test and also a jerry-rigged hip abduction test because <laughs> there's no field uh, test that's okay except for like the hand dynamometer but then you have user variability sure. so I was like setting up a, a dynamometer up against something solid and trying to take measures that way mm -hmm. um, and then we were supposed to do that in the spring and then that didn't happen so <laughs> didn't, I have not collected any data and I'm a year and a half into my doctorate. It's not normal, but it's also not necessarily a bad thing. Sure. So they said that we're still on tra trajectory, a little bit more behind than the average PhD student would be, but I think it's a special case for everyone in my situation at this point, so. Right, yeah, I feel like that is that, that's not the theme of 2020. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Growing into that, I'm actually working with a couple undergrads that we were supposed to do a research study that they have got a grant for and whatnot. And it was um, with football and utilizing a new like technology thing for pumping up the helmets and, you know, looking at that versus just doing a hand pump. And if it's a better way to go about it, looking at concussion risk. And obviously that's not going to happen because we're not going to play football this year. That's uh, the thing. Yeah. Pretty hard to run that study without the actual sport occurring. So I, I, I hear you there. Yeah. I'm uh, so like my big project that I'm leading up to, because I've done a paper that I've submitted, I'm working on the revisions right now and trying to reorganize and rephrase some stuff and resubmitting that by January. But I'm also in process of developing a survey study to um, assess mindfulness levels and different demographics of athletes, as well as athletic trainers. Um, and then with that leading into my big project, which would be implementing a mindfulness training program, um, which will potentially be virtually, um, and then assessing, you know, the different, the changes in mindfulness scores, as well as injury monitoring, monitoring, but 
if they're not being competitive and they're not being exposed to injury risk, then it's going to be pretty difficult to um, assess the fact that it might reduce injuries. Yeah. Should be some interesting stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, not to fully focus on school. <laughs> no, well, I mean, of course, it's, it's, it's my life. It's my passion. Let's do it. Yeah. Um, movement matters. Um, so many questions around this, but just, you know, what prompted you to start this? Uh, yeah, I mean, I feel obviously not knowing how old you are, but knowing the general like millennial ish age group and whatnot, we're all supposed to be known for our quote unquote side hustle. Um, and so <laughs> yes. what, what prompted you to start this um, and just, you know, maybe some more background on exactly what movement matters is meant to do. Obviously you put out a lot of good content, but how does that complement anything else you're doing with it as its own entity? Awesome. Yeah. Uh, so when I was back home in Santa Barbara, um, let's see, this was three, three years ago that this idea for sure first conceptualized four, four years ago. Okay. Um, I was doing a lot of coverage, like independent contractor work. So I was covering soccer academy tournaments. I was covering lacrosse tournaments. And so you're the one time show up and you're the one time interaction that these kids have when they get injured. Right. Um, So what happens to them after you tell them what's wrong with them? Like, are they actually going through the rehab processes? Are they coming back too soon? Is there co- are there coaches on top of, you know, their injury recovery process? Mm-hmm. Like what's happening to them? Because I obviously wasn't keeping in contact with them. I would offer to give them my phone number if they ever had any questions. But as far as like treatment wise, there was nothing more that I could do. Um, and I could give them resources to go to, like, you should be taking them to physical therapy. If it gets worse, you should go see an ortho. Um, it's basically like differentiating between an ER or not. Um, and so I felt like my interaction wasn't enough to make sure that these parents and these kids had enough information, um, in order to take care of their injuries properly. And then, you know, working with kids that are 11 years old and playing on a soccer academy team, which means they're playing year round soccer. And then you see them in high school and they've got chronic ankle sprains or volleyball players that are constantly playing year round. And obviously sports specialization is uh, more developed in the research. And I think people are starting to listen to, um, you know, the warnings on doing that. So I think that's great. Um, But you're still going to get those kids that, you know, want to excel in the one sport and their parents want them to get scholarships and they don't understand the detriment that it does. And so I was trying to figure out a way of how I could provide treatment outside of or like further um, help. Um, So I developed movement matters. I was also coaching at a gym. So I had my supervising a physician sign off on uh, standing orders for me in a private setting. Nice. Um, and so I was working at the gym, being able to provide uh, like a transition. So like they would come see me, I would do some rehab things, and then I would um, take them through a strength and training protocol and make sure that they were able to return to play. So um, yeah, that's kind of where Movement Matters got its start. Um since then, like because of the pandemic, that's when I really like launched it 
And I was like, I might as well start training some people virtually to see how many people want to train at home. So I reached out and I got some athletes to work with. They were either at the college, um, not doing anything currently, or they're some of my friends that live in different areas of the continents. Um, And so it's been great so far. Um, An an added uh, component of the business is called the, the complete athlete. And that's my, that's kind of my baby, I think. Uh, it's my injury prevention guide. It's like my complete athlete prescription for injury prevention. <laughs> and uh, I basically, I've implemented it at one high school in New Hampshire. I went to, I drove to New Hampshire. I met the coach at, um, I used, I worked for PGC. I don't know if you're familiar with PGC. Uh, it's Point right. Guard College. Okay. It's, it's a basketball camp. Okay. And they have it at several locations uh, nationwide. And I think they're in Canada as well. Uh, but basically for a week long, the athletes come and stay in dorms and they do the camp at the colleges. Okay. Um, and I met this coach when I was working as one, uh, I was working as like the site coordinator and the athletic trainer. So they flew me to the site. I coordinated the everything that happened. Plus I was working as athletic trainer, mm-hmm. um, met the coach talked to him about my research focus and my idea about injury prevention and talked to him about the program that I was thinking about doing. He was like, we'd love to have you uh, come to the high school and give a demonstration or a presentation to the kids. Um, so that's what I did. Um, it turned out to be a one hour, an hour and a half like PowerPoint presentation that covers everything from nutrition, uh, relationships, mindfulness, mindset, uh, strength and conditioning, sleep, you name it. Um, which are all things that are entailed in like a really comprehensive injury prevention program. Um, and then we spent the day after that, after the presentation, I took them through what would be like a elite athlete experience of a strength training session. Mm-hmm. Um, we did speed and agility drills. We did, uh, we incorporated some basketball, of course, with their coaches and their coaches assisted in all of the demonstrations and the breakout group things that we were doing as well. And then the parents provided the lunch spread and I gave them a menu to create more of a nutritional um, practice and on what lunch should look like for them. Um, And then, yeah, and it lasted all day. At the end, they had a one hour yoga session and mindfulness training from a local mindfulness uh, instructor that I had come out. So um, it was a really cool way to bring in some local businesses to help too. And then the athletic trainer of that high school actually joined in and he came to the, pre- the PowerPoint presentation. Um, so I, I like coordinating with other athletic trainers to be able to deliver this program, which sure. I think would be great for any team at the beginning um, of their season. Couldn't agree more. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> man. <laughs> I had so many questions that I could come up. <laughs> go for it shoot yeah, no, i'm just trying to figure out <laughs> what order um i guess i'm curious you know i, I follow what some of you you obviously what you post um saw you post something uh today uh, i think it was on your story um that was a exos um quote and so just kind of also a huge fan of exos try we try and model a lot of what we do where i'm at off of their philosophy uh, it's just trying to, you know, piece it all together uh, with all the different tools that we have and just make it organized. But are there other, other like main influencers that, you know, that you've taken and kind of looked 
and to build into your own program. Obviously, you've put your own spin on it, all these different things, but even watching your morning video um, today, you know, yoga practice, you know, very typical, you know, common yoga poses. Um, so I guess the general question is, you know, were there some big influencers where obviously you're not just straight up stealing their stuff by any means, but, you know, that's, I think the biggest thing that we all do is to take a little bit from here and there and everything like that. And so just curious as to who else has been a major influence for you in developing all of this. Uh, oh my goodness. Um, to be honest, um, that's a good question. I think it's just been my years of experience and exposure to different practices um, yeah. and different professionals that I've met along the way and like learning what people are doing in their practice um, and the things that I've learned throughout the years and applying all of it uh, in like synchronous, synchronous way, I guess. Um, because the, the private school or the boarding school I was working at, that's where I found out about EXOS. And we had implemented at the high school between the athletic training room and the strength uh, and the strength coach. Mm -hmm. um, so it was it, it was an excellent way to have a streamless transition from one to the other. Um, and the coaches were all on board with it. So we were able to incorporate their, you know, their style of warmups, which is the dynamic flexibility with the movement integration and the mm -hmm. neural activation. Um, so you know, that's really when my passion for strength and conditioning started to surface. Mm -hmm. And that's why I pursued my master's in sports conditioning was to get a better background on how to do exercise prescription um, for when athletes are done with the rehab phase, and even to help me with my rehab programming, because <laughs> coming out of you know, undergrad, it's like the three sets of 10 and then progress them, yeah. and then hold them for three for 30 seconds. It's yeah. always like the rule of threes is what I call it. And it's just, it's okay. so man mundane. And I'm just like, there has to be a better way, but obviously there's always going to be a starting point, but then how do we get them past that? Because we mm. don't want them to plateau and rehab and then just go into their sport. Like, okay, they're ready to play. That's it. Right, right. That's, that's not how that should work. So like we should be better equipped to be able to continue their progress and encourage them to continue their progress because it's not something that once they're finished with rehab, they're not going to get injured again because they will, if they don't continue to get stronger. Yep. Um, so I think by doing that and um, recognizing more strength and conditioning is when I started following more people and connecting with strength coaches and trying to work with different gyms um, to either shadow or become a coach. Like I started group training, um, coaching people of different ages. Um, and so it just kind of like grew, blew up from there. Um, and, and then I've been in, I've been practicing yoga since 2010. Okay. Um, because I was training for a marathon and I needed uh, more. <laughs> so instead of just the Hal Higdon marathon training program, I needed something else. Uh, so I started practicing yoga to stay flexible and reduces my chance of injury as much as I could. Um, but yeah, so I would just say like over the years, I've adopted different practices uh -huh. and, and really try to incorporate them with the athletes that I uh, work with. Yeah, to your point on the rehab thing, I'll have to dig it up. I don't remember who the author was, but this got sent um, where I'm at. We have a master's program in human performance and um, basically teaching a lot of the exos, you know, type philosophy on 
exercise prescription and, you know, the movement, teaching movement really and training the whole athlete and the guy that, uh, that runs it, uh, I work extremely closely with, sent me a paper and it was basically putting a periodization program to your rehab. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. how important that is you know to your point of it's not just three sets of 10 because that's just what it is and that's one you know I've had to break myself of that and you know working with our students and you know guys you can you can only do two sets but you can do it till it just burns that they have you know that they lose their form like that you're still getting a lot done you're probably even getting more done depending on what you're doing Mm -hmm. Um, I think the loading thing of you know trying to teach people it's not just Think of this as training, not rehab, because if you think rehab, it's just, oh, we're just going through the different things. So, uh, yeah. Oh, exactly. And then yeah. I think just my, like with working at different physical therapy clinics as an aide and being responsible, solely responsible for running people through their exercises, mm-hmm. you develop a, a certain knack for perfect form. <laughs> yeah. And so I was pretty particular when it came to joint placement um, and movement patterns to make sure that if, if, it, if I was only able to do one thing at the damn clinic as an AT, besides folding towels, I was going to be freaking good at it. So I made sure that all of these patients knew exactly what they're doing and what their body was supposed to be doing and what it mm-hmm. should feel like to make sure that they could carry that with them outside of physical therapy. Like when you do these motions, like going upstairs, walking, running, this is what's supposed to be happening. And they're right. like, but that's not happening. Yes, I know. That's why you're here. And this is why we're doing this. Um, so that's where I kind of just developed that. Um, mm, I don't know. Narcissism for movement patterns. <laughs> yeah. One of the questions I had, um, just, you know, I, I think you've probably explained it kind of roundaboutly and just everything that we've talked about, like we could put it together, but you know, why the title movement matters I think it, it's relatively self-explanatory, but obviously that's something that, you know, means a lot to you. Um, you know, is there anything, you know, the deeper meaning behind that? Um, to be honest, I, I don't, I wouldn't necessarily say that there's um, a deeper meaning, but movement applies to everything that we do. It's not just in sports that movement matters. It's in our daily activities, like bending down to pick up our kids, bending down to drop the food we drop the, off the counter or reaching up high on a shelf. Like it, it, there's so many things unconsciously happening that, and it's it actually a major contributor for people getting injured is like, well, they bent down and threw out their back. Well, mm-hmm. what did you engage your core? Well, I didn't know I needed to do that. So, you know, like being able to help people understand that how you move, not only in the way that you move, but how you move is super important um, and can be applied to anything, recreational sports, competition, sports, gardening, daily activities, like you name it, your profession. Um, And then the, the fact that now that we're in a pandemic and a lot of people are working at home and sitting at the desk more than we ever have before, um, especially in AT, right? Like we never liked doing office work in the first place, which is why we're in this profession, but now that's where we find ourselves sitting. Right. So um, it's, it, I think now more than ever movement matters. <laughs> Couldn't agree more. Uh, it just so happens we've had, uh, you know, in the string of our upcoming guests in this episode, um, there's been a few 
entrepreneurial minded people and getting their own thing started. Obviously you've done that um, and built it up, you know, in several different iterations, um, whether it's because you wanted to, or because a global pandemic kind of forced you to do so. Um, you know, what advice might you have to athletic trainers, you know, looking to potentially get into this, or if you could kind of go back and even give yourself some advice that, man, if I would have known this, maybe this would have gone smoother. Do you have anything specific? Um, I, you know, to get my, idea, like I had an idea. I knew I didn't want, I liked being able to be an independent contractor and, and working with independent sports organizations to help them with their sports medicine practice or their coverage. Um, so like I was reaching out and getting information from the people I wanted to work with mm -hmm. the most. Um, so getting feedback from what they saw, from what they needed or felt like was missing um, is how I really sort of built uh, the idea behind Movement Matters um, and to kind of create that foundation of need. And then I started working with a business coach. And thankfully, like um, I met her while I was working at a physical therapy clinic and kind of talked to her about like the ideas I had brewing. And she was like, oh, you're in your gold stage or your golden age, something, something had to do with gold. Um, and I was like, what does that mean? She's like, well, I'm a business coach. And like, this is what that means. And I was like, do you have a card? <laughs> um, so she gave me her card and um, she, I started working with her and she really helped kind of um, highlight and put on paper how I'm marketable because sure. we're marketing us. And I don't like the things that I think most people know, they actually don't. So like the things that set me apart, it was kind of like a duh for me, but obviously no one's going to know that unless I tell them. Um, so like in the area I was in, I was the only female athletic trainer working in a strength training facility. Um, there were several, you know, it's, it's kind of become, becoming kind of popular since exos that physical therapy clinics are now opening like biomechanic and, um, specialized yep. strength training labs. Right. Yep. Um, but funny enough, none of them had athletic trainers, mm -hmm. um, or people that were directly on the sidelines and, you know, um, had the knowledge base of dealing with you know, injuries or, you know, like we know what happens <laughs> sort of situation. And so the, it, I was an untapped resource for a lot of these places. Um, so I knew my value. So knowing your value and what you have to offer um, the certain population or demographic that you're targeting is very important. Um, and that's re what really helped me uh, develop my framework for my business. So I definitely think uh, research and knowledge or information seeking from the people. I think that's probably a underutilized thing within the profession is just, you know, we, we, athletic trainers talk about their value all the time, but there's so many different iterations of that. I think how you put it, I, I really like to figure out how you are marketable. Mm -hmm. I, I like that a lot. That just, it kind of switches a mindset of how to think about those things and what unique things you can bring that others just don't. Well, because I'm not, I don't, I'm not a person that likes to brag in the first place. Sure. So when you're, when your business coach tells me, you know, who are you? What do you do? And I'm just like, well, blah, 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 blah. She's like, no, 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 no. Like what's your education? Like, what are your certifications? What are your qualifications? And I'm just like, 
Oh, now you get to lay it all out, right? So yeah. it's a resume that is laid out for other people to see besides job interviewers or job prospects. Right. The people, the people are your job prospects and they need your resume. Also a great way to think about it. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Um anything else around, you know, your PhD work or movement matters that we didn't cover that you'd like to get to? Um, before we hop into these AT chat questions. Oh yeah, um, I actually don't think that we kind of covered what I was researching. Uh, I know that we talked about like the psychological factors around injury prevention, but I don't think we, uh, I, I don't think I touched on why that was important. Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, <laughs> um, so uh, essentially the, uh, through the year and a half that I've been looking at this area, um, it, I'm discovering that there's a, it's small. There's a big area of research that was established about 30 years ago that um, developed a stress injury model. So it's basically like a mediation model that says history of stress, uh, history of injury, um, or um, yeah, history of injury, life stressors, personality and coping resources all funnel into a stress response. Um, and then that mediating uh, stress response is uh, responsible for uh, your injury risk. Um, since then, there's been a lot of research surrounding the predictors of sports injury. So things like anxiety, stress, depression are associated with increased uh, injury risk. Um, uh, but in 2014, an additional, like an extension to that model was uh proposed. And that one, I, I have a bias towards because I think it, it really encompasses a lot more than just uh, certain constructs. Um, so this one more deals with like the physiological aspect of the stress response. So, you know, chronic stress has a lot to do with immunosuppression or increased um, inflammatory responses um, in addition to other behavioral mechanisms. So getting poor sleep, um, poor quality, like self-care. So there's, there's numerous factors that the stress response can have if it's chronic and prolonged, mm -hmm. um, which a lot of athletes tend to deal with. Um, and an area that I, I do want to research more is the differences of stress levels between team sport athletes and individual sport athletes, mm. which is more new. Like this was in the most recent like month that I started discovering like an area that might be of interest and smaller. Um, but as far as the uh, concept of using a psychological intervention to help reduce injury, um, that's a little bit smaller. Uh, there's only been 16 studies now as of 2020 that have used a psychological intervention and have seen a reduction in injuries. Um, some of those uh, programs are like cognitive behavioral therapy that focus on stress management, uh, imagery, mindfulness training, um, imagery, like autogenic training. So all of these different types of strategies and techniques that really focus on stress management are what have been shown to help reduce injury. So I think indirectly there, you know, when you reduce the stress response or enable athletes to have an awareness in how they respond to stress mm -hmm. and be able to manage it well, um, they're reducing their injury. And then of course, um, we're also helping the overall athlete and their well-being in addition to reducing their injury. So I think that's, you know, the injury prevention is obviously like our, 
our bread and butter, but then taking care of the overall athlete and addressing their mental health um, is definitely more, more of a priority for me. So if you just happen to, you know, reduce their injury, it's a bonus. <laughs> sure. No, absolutely. Um, yeah. That's something we've been taking a look at. Uh, we've been fortunate enough. I mean, it's been a year and a half, but we hired a athletic trainer and she is all in on mental health and it has been such an eye-opening thing, you know, and there's part of the reason we obviously hired her. Uh, you know, I was going to have, we were going to have a mental health policy per what we needed to do. I just, it wasn't going to be beyond that because it just wasn't feasible. You know, if I was going to be running it and, or just not the depth of interest that that person did, but man, the more we keep talking about it and looking at it, it just, the whole thing is going to have to change. I think, you know, especially in the collegiate level of what the resources are and how they're going about it. And I think it's a great thing. It's just it, that shift seems to be happening and it's a little daunting to say the least. Um, but I think it's fantastic. And, you know, bringing up stuff like that, especially when you can tie it to the performance aspect of it is such a, big selling point that I think that'll help just almost speed it up to make it more impactful. Oh, for sure. I mean, sports psychologists have been in the business of increasing sports performance by using these programs for years. Mm -hmm. Um, So the fact that it's now transitioning where others providers can implement similar programs, um, but for the purpose of injury prevention and then ultimately do help with sports performance as well. Um, So I think and I, you know, I was reading a, a study about how athletic trainers are hesitant to, and as was I, like I was guilty of this when I got to my program and they wanted me to, wanted me to do something in the psychological realm. And I was like, well, I'm not a sports psychologist. Like, right. am I working outside of my scope? And they were like, did you, and they told me, they said, you know, sports psychologists aren't actually like certified as a sports psychologist. It's, it's a title. And I was like, I did not realize that they said they have a background in psychology and they might be licensed licensed psychologists who have a forte in sports and working with athletes. And I was like, oh, so when I had talked to them about, you know, implementing a mindfulness training program or something like that, I was like, am I allowed to do that? And they were like, yes, of course, we just need to do some training. And I was like, oh, well, okay, then. (laughs) So that's what I've been doing. Like I've been my colleague this this section right here because we've run into some stuff on our campus about that very gray area of yeah you know mental resiliency and you know all the different things versus true counseling and some some of the people on our campus get a little twitchy around that well you know it yes i mean that's our profession like when we're in human health like there's like a web and everybody's interconnected and our scopes kind of like intertwine Um, but I mean we're all in the same business of protecting the athletes and helping their well-being and making sure that they're managing themselves the best way that they can Um, but you know working together to make sure that they know these resources are available and using a program like uh, so like in my paper I'm writing about like you know um Feasibility is obviously going to be a barrier um, to implementing some programs and, you know, using questionnaires, assessing stress levels of athletes um, during their pre-participation examinations might be a good way to like open that box of like, 
why are they asking me about my stress and athletics? And then like cueing them like, oh, these are connected. Uh, my, my coaches want to know if I'm doing well. So, yeah. you know, opening that dialogue, I think is going to be like the most important thing that we can start to achieve uh, with the athletes. Um, because, you know, it's just been, I feel like between the coach coaching with fear that we've been confronted with and being exposed, you know, most recently um, on top of other stigmas that any t- sort of mental health situation is, you know, negative and makes them look bad. Um, but to really shed light on like, these are very important things <laughs> and they're normal um, and should right. be talked about, right. Yeah. To remove all of those uh, negative associations, I think is where the, you know, the culture needs to move towards. And I'm glad that it's, you know, taking strides towards it. And I'm hoping through my research that it helps as well. Open the door. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I have to stay connected as you keep getting through that. Um, so I can have you potentially send some of that over and I'll just forward it along to my colleague. Cause I know she's going to be all. Definitely. Oh, I'm going to be recruiting some ATs to do some mindfulness uh, questionnaires because my thing is, is like, okay, well, we're asking the athletes to go through mindfulness, but how mindful are the athletic trainers and the sure. providers that are implementing the program? Because we're supposed to practice what we preach. And yep. so if we're not taking care of our own mental health, how can we take care of our athletes' mental health? Makes sense. Makes mm-hmm. sense. Yep. <laughs> Anything else you'd like to cover? Oof. I I think that was like a little bit. Let me like scan through. I mean, yeah. let's see, our little notes. See if we basically covered everything. I've been trying to work off of that, so I feel like we've got most of. I guess the five to ten years. I think that sort of like you know, well, in the psychological sense, that's where I really would like to see the profession going. So, yeah, so that's where you'd like to see at get is being able to pull in more of the psychological well yeah and then just uh as much as we can focus on more preventative programs like really expanding all of our resources into preventing injuries like getting all of the coaches and all of the teams on the same page to implement those comprehensive programs um I think are really going to help them reduce their amount of injuries because I mean, it just keeps rising and it, and it's ridiculous because so many of them can be prevented. Yeah. I'm totally with you when I've looked at just kind of, you know, the scope of practices and the different professions, you know, that injury prevention just seems like it's sitting out there for us to just go in and take it over. I mean, you could argue that strength and conditioning could definitely kind of move into that as well, but to a degree, you know, just because of the difference, you know, licensed medical provider versus, you know, certified strength and conditioning. And, you know, for a lot of those strength and conditioning coaches, like, yes, it's important, but you also only have like four years in a lot of cases, you know, high school and or college to maximize performance. So trying to do that other thing as well can become tough for that. So I I totally agree with you that 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 should be a place we continue to drive. And I think that's where the collaborative network comes in, right? So like you, you reduce the walls that are separating or the barriers that separate the athletic training room and the coaches and the strength and conditioning department and the mental health services on campus and the physician and the dietitian. Um, so like really net like gluing all of those pieces together and creating some sort of 
seamless integration between all of the providers to uh, create this environment of uh, just resources for the athletes. Like if they knew everything that was at their fingertips because everybody's talking about it or referring back and forth and it would be so much easier as opposed to like the athletes having to figure it out for themselves sometimes, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, if you could go back and give yourself some advice when you were a younger athletic trainer, what would it be? And if you could kind of set that time frame um, of when that was, uh, what, what would you say? <laughs> um, we don't just tape ankles and ice is the enemy. <laughs> Perfect. I love it. <laughs> I've, you know, I've made a joke about myself that I'm the worst athletic trainer because I don't ice and I hate taping ankles. <laughs> I don't, I don't know that you, you're the company that you keep is ever expanding. I think in terms yeah. of not liking ice. Uh, and then, yeah, the taping thing. I don't like taping ankles because a, I have to run our budget and we can't afford it. Um, and B, it, it just, the data doesn't really show that it's going to be all that beneficial. And then yes, the ice thing. Man, was that a phase shift when I actually sat down and just thought about it. All it took was thinking about it and that was it. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and for me, it was, you know, uh, so when, when I figured out about taping not being the greatest method of prevention, yep. um, was probably my second, like close to my, um, third, uh, semester in undergrad. Okay. Um, and people were still doing it and it was, and then I, and then for the icing thing, I was working in an internship with a summer uh, collegiate baseball team and the manager, um, he's high up in the MLB world. And like, I used to want to do the MLB route uh, mm -hmm. until I figured out it's very political and old man business. So, um, uh, he confronted me about icing the pitcher after, after he came off of the field and I was working with the pitching coach and the pitching coach had given him post exercise, uh, post throwing exercises. Yep. And then, so I told the, uh, the manager, no, I'm not icing him. He has to go do his exercise and then it gets to chill. And he was like, no, 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 he needs ice. And, and in front of all of the players, I'm just like, no. <laughs> so it was just, it was really fascinating. And, uh, I'm glad I know what I know. I'm glad I did what I did and that I stood up because I knew my position on it and I knew that it wasn't going to help the player any. So, right. Uh, yeah, absolutely. What has been the most influential resource that you've come across in your career? Oh man. Um, I would say other athletic trainers, um, being able to work with other professionals like myself and kind of getting an idea of how people approach their practice. Um, and then also other providers learning from orthopedic physicians, learning from physical therapists who have kind of like a similar mindset of incorporating like all encompassing approach to treatment and rehab. Um, yeah, has definitely been some of my main resources are just other providers in our profession. Absolutely. Um, so this question you may, may or may not have already answered just because if you went back and told yourself this, um, if you could, could change or eliminate one thing, could be a modality, a common practice or a mindset, whatever it is um, within the field of athletic training, what would it be and why? 
Um, yeah, I definitely think that that was it. When I saw that question, I was like, oh, nobody use ice and nobody tape anymore. Just tell them no. Um, you know, and then I also think like for the mentality, like um, we're, I think the new generation of athletic trainers are really setting, uh, you know, setting the picture and the expectation of the new wave of being more empathetic and applying uh, better practices for treatment approaches and rehabilitation, um, as opposed to just, you know, like slapping on ice and saying that it'll get better or just stretch and it'll go away. Like there's, there's more involved, like it's a full body comprehensive picture that needs to be um, acknowledged and trying to fix um, when time allows it. Right. So, um, and, and being able to set up a profession to, uh, provide those services, I think is going to be a big deal too. Um, because the way that it's been ingrained that we work the 60 hour weeks and we have the long days and we're just constantly doing treatment and treatment and treatment and treatment and not addressing the preventative stuff. So I think that's going to be a huge transition and I'm hoping that we see it at the end, you know, at the end of our, our career lifespan or before that, God, I hope before that. <laughs> Couldn't agree more. Um, yeah. <laughs> you being in the trenches of that and, you know, having a staff and having staff reductions and trying to control those things. Like it is, it is going to be a battle for a really long time, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but man, it, it, it's, it's worth it when, it all comes through and, you know, you're able to keep people in the profession and you're trying to just expand. You know, I, I haven't gone as far as like removing our ice machine or completely like storing away our passive modalities. Um, but just constantly, you know, hammering, here's another way to look at it. Here's another way to look at it. And it, it, it takes time, but we, we get there and, you know, we'll see what happens. Yeah. I mean, use, I, I, you know, I'm not going to completely bash modalities because I think they have their purpose for specific situations. Right. And it's definitely technology is a good thing to take advantage of, but making the athletes as self-sufficient as possible, is totally, you know, worthwhile and like is better for our time too, is like, if you know what that, what you need to do to take care of yourself, just come in, grab, grab the crap that you need and do your stuff. Like that way we can just teach them like what's going on with their body and that it's a movement based approach and like we can fix these things. So what an important aspect of the coaching side of it, being able to coach them up so they can come in, do their things, do them properly. Yeah. You know, and they're not just going through the motions. I think that's a huge piece of it as well. Exactly. Yep. Uh, Final question. What does being an athletic trainer mean to you? Um, my goodness, I, I kind of have referenced that I'm the Walmart of the healthcare industry. Uh, when you, you haven't heard that one? Not that one. I like it. (laughs) I I, I get it. Yeah. So when you come to us for a certain situation, we end up being able to refer you to all sorts of different departments. Yeah. Um, especially if we're not equipped to handle it or enable to get you the best service there is, you need to also do all of these things. Mm -hmm. Um, so 
being like the the go-to and the communicator between all the providers yep. and i'll speak with high school in general like the high school population like speaking between you know the go-to between the coach and the player and the parents and then the orthopedic physician and the physiotherapist and the chiropractor and the dietitian, like yep. Yep. just being able to meld and bring those bring everybody together to make sure we're on the same page for this one athlete sure. i think is a beautiful thing i absolutely love it couldn't agree more. Those are some of my, you know, when people ask, you know, what's a proud moment? It's when we had this athlete and we had to coordinate these 17 things in order to get done what we needed to get done for them to get back. And I played my role in helping to facilitate that and what I could bring to the table. Those are some of my more like ones that I refer back to just because they are such unique situations. And I, I, I agree. 100%. Yeah. I also, you know, another thing I love about our profession is the knowledge base and the skills that we possess that are unlike any other profession mm-hmm. that exists. Um, and being able to argue with an ortho or a coach, like on knowing or having a better hunch or an idea of something about an athlete and then end up being correct about it and standing on our laurels and, and like, using my gut, like I'm, I'm trusting my gut. And I, this is, this is, if you don't do this, like, I swear this is going to happen and like being okay with that. And like, those are some of the best moments I've ever had is like standing up for myself and what I know to be right. Um, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't be that way if it weren't for the education that I went through and the skills I've developed over the years. So, um, I'm super thankful for our profession and where it's, where it's gotten me in my life and in my career. So, I can't wait to see what happens in the next 10 years. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, well, in closing, um, if people want to reach out to you, follow what you're doing, uh, we'll link all this up uh, on your page when we get there. Um, but if you could let us know what those are. Um, yeah. So on my Instagram, I'm movement matters. Um, so M V M T uh, dot matters. And um that I have uh, a link tree that you can access my Facebook page to as well. And my email, my emails on the Instagram page, um, or just shoot me a DM through Instagram or Facebook. That's pretty much the easiest way. So awesome. Yeah. Well, I'm glad we finally got this to work out. Uh, Same. <laughs> uh, and look forward to uh, potential follow-up again in the future. Really appreciate you. Well, oh, thank you so much for having me, Joel. I appreciate it.